Please bow with me in prayer. Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. I chose shorter scripture readings for a reason. (laughs) No, just kidding. I'm just kidding. Actually, for those of you that might not have been here, we're continuing on our sermon series for Lent on miracles. And uh, last week I talked about the miracle of Jesus healing the ten lepers. And this week uh, we're going to focus on Jesus healing a paralytic. It's not the only time that Jesus healed a paralytic, but it's one of the times. And for me, this particular scripture, this particular healing has been one of the most memorable healings over the years. And there's several reasons why. One of the reasons is, in our minds, in my mind, I have such a picture that has stuck there through the years. It's one of those scriptures that you can just get a picture in your mind and it'll stick there of this paralytic dropping down from the ceiling. And in some ways, it's almost humorous, the picture that you get. And it's one of the reasons that it's probably stuck there. Uh, Think for a moment. We're talking about someone's home. So we're not talking about a large setting like this. We're talking about someone's living room. And it probably was not a wealthy home, so it probably was not a large living room. And if you think about a small setting and someone preaching... It doesn't take much to distract. If you can just picture in your mind's eye a spider coming down. We're talking about a spider the size of a man coming down. That's what I'm talking about. That's why you can get this picture in your mind as to how distracting that would be. And even before that, the straw starting to drop down, and the mud starting to fall, because that's the kind of roof that this would be. And I guarantee you that the people there that are picturing this, that you probably have several reactions going on. One reaction would be possibly appalled. Some reactions might be giggling. I mean, think about it just for a moment here. If you're sitting in this church, if you're close enough up front, if there was a spider here, you would be distracted. You would be focusing on the spider. Not me. And if there was a baby in front of you, smiling, I'd be waving like this. You would not see me. If the baby was cooing or crying, it'd be worse. I watch when people get up and walk out or when people come in, most eyes divert. Because I watch it. You might not be aware of it. I am. It's amazing how distracted people get so easily in a church. 
This is a living room. And we're told, I don't know if you caught this, we're told that Jesus is, is, is in Capernaum, or Capernaum as some people say, at home. Did you ever realize that? Did you ever think of that? At home in Capernaum. That's not what we think about. When we think about Jesus, some people's minds run to Bethlehem. Some people's minds run to Nazareth. But when we hear the name Capernaum, we don't think of Jesus being at home at Capernaum. It might be helpful to think, just for a moment, let's switch to a different scene, a different gospel. Probably that happened a little before this in Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, there's several little snippets that lead up to this particular scene that fill in the gap a little bit. Because in Luke chapter 4, what we see is Jesus, first of all, after he's baptized and then he's tempted in the wilderness, he ends up going to his hometown, Nazareth, and he preaches. And he opens up the scroll of Isaiah, reads from Isaiah 61, which is a messianic passage, And he says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me to preach good news to the poor and to the prisoner. And then he closes the scroll and he says, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's a messianic passage. He's referring to himself and everybody starts murmuring. And the more he talks, the angrier they get. And they take him outside the city to a cliff and they're getting ready to hurl him off of a cliff. That's probably a good reason to move. That's one aspect leading up to this story in Mark chapter 2. Secondly, eventually, he ends up going to Capernaum. In Capernaum, one of the places that he spends time is Peter's home. In Peter's home, he heals Peter's mother-in-law. And then other people come for healing. And then he says at one point, we need to go to other places where I can preach and teach, for that is why I came. He's about getting the word out, the kingdom of God. Then he returns to Capernaum, it seems. And we are told he's back home again. Now the question arises... Is he at his own home? Because it seems that it's saying that he's home. Now, I still to this day will sometimes, when I slip, I'll refer to going home to Pittsburgh. It's not my home anymore. It hasn't been my home for almost 30 years. It's my hometown. It's where I was born. But it's not my home anymore. But I will sometimes slip and say that. And so was Jesus going to his actual home or was he going to his hometown? If it was his roof that was being torn apart, Jesus would be gracious. He wouldn't say a thing. He'd say, well, this is kind of interesting. And he would probably even know what was going on and wouldn't be bothered by it. Right now. Many commentators speculate that this was Peter's home. 
Now, can you imagine Peter? Calm, cool, collected Peter. They're tearing my roof apart. Peter's probably standing there, and he's getting red-faced. And if he could, he would probably pace back and forth, but there's no room, so he can't pace, right? And he would probably say something that he would regret, but Jesus is there. You know how when there's people in our home, we restrain ourselves sometimes because we want to be good? We don't want to say something we'll regret, and it's Jesus after all. But I'm sure he's thinking, great, I invite this guy into my home, and look what happens to my roof. (laughs) A number of years ago, not long after we moved here, probably in the realm of 20 or so years ago, I noticed on my roof that there was this layer of pine straw and leaves. And I thought, that's probably not good. It wasn't my experience living in Pittsburgh, living in San Antonio, that you do anything about stuff like that because it didn't happen. But I asked someone in my neighborhood what you should do about it. They said, you get it off your roof. And I said, oh, okay, how do you do that? And they said, well, you either get someone to blow it off or you blow it off yourself. Well, I wasn't about to pay someone to blow it off, so I blew it off myself. And this was like a carpet, okay? It was amazing. And it literally rolled off in rolls. And underneath it, my roof looked like waffles, which is not good. And I thought... I probably need someone to look at this. So I got a roofer, actually a guy I knew, and he came over and he said, I think you're probably going to need a new roof. So we agreed that he would eventually do it, and I kept thinking that that meant sooner rather than later, which didn't happen sooner. And eventually we had a downpour, huge downpour, and our roof leaked in quite a number of spots, and I was not happy. In fact, I was quite angry. So I can imagine if it was Peter's home, a big hole in the roof big enough to drop a person through, how he probably was not happy. But let me tell you what I appreciate about the story. What I appreciate about the story is the commitment of these friends. Would that we all had friends that committed. That they obviously had heard about Jesus. My guess is that this guy had tried other means in the past. Maybe doctors. Maybe faith healers. Maybe the local synagogue and the rabbi. But the friends were so committed. They were not deterred. And they went to extreme to help their friend. Those are good friends. They took their time. They went to the effort. And they tore a roof apart to get their friend to Jesus. 
And they dropped him through the roof, hoping that he would find healing. My guess is what they were expecting to hear was some kind of prayer or words over him that would bespeak some kind of healing prayer. And what does Jesus say? Your sins are forgiven. What do you think their reaction was at that point? I think probably disappointment. I don't think that's what they were expecting. Maybe abracadabra. Maybe some kind of magical movement, touch. That is not what they were expecting. But you need to understand the mindset of some, at least, that were around Jesus and around the scene. Particularly if you know what was going on in another part of the scripture, John chapter 9. Where there was a man born blind. And the question came to Jesus, why was this man born blind? Is it because he sinned or because his parents sinned? Is that why he was born blind? Which raises a whole other question in can of worms. And we even know today that there are physical issues and maladies due psychosomatically because of trauma that happens to people. For example, we know that people can't see or can't hear due to trauma. That there is paralysis due to trauma that isn't physical in nature. So conceivably, it could be spiritual. Conceivably, it could be psychological. Or it could be physical. So there could be a sin component in it. But what does Jesus say in John chapter 9? In my mind, would be the same thing that he would respond here if he responded. Which is, it's not about the sin. It's about the power of God and glorifying God. That's what's going on here. It's about the more important priority. Because God doesn't have the same perspective that we have. The more important priority is the eternal perspective. Which is about the forgiveness of sin. Because over and over in Scripture, if you really understand what Jesus is about, it's why he would say earlier in Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, I need to go on to these other towns and other cities because I need to preach. It's not just about the healing. It's about the eternal perspective. It's about eternal salvation. It's about the heart. It's about the soul. He would say in other parts of Scripture. Go and sin no more so that nothing worse would befall you. He would say in another part of Scripture. 
you can gain the world and lose your soul. You know what's amazing is how much focus, think about it, how much focus and how much time we spend on the physical, on the material, on the worldly, and we neglect the spiritual. When God is most interested in what is going on in your soul and in your heart. And what your focus is really all about. So that's what Jesus is getting at here. It's that the physical healing really is pointing to, and it's all about what's going on spiritually. It's meant to open the door for the spiritual. It's meant to confirm the spiritual. And Jesus could heal him, but if it doesn't have an impact on his soul, it doesn't matter in the big scheme of things. It doesn't matter for all eternity. So what's the point? Because God is after the eternal. That's His priority. That's His desire. That's what He wants for you. But you know the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the ones that really at this point aren't open to Him, they ignore that. They ignore that. What do they say? It's blasphemy. He's talking about something he shouldn't talk about because that's God's business. And if you look at Leviticus chapter 24, someone who blasphemes, who says your sins are forgiven, which is God's territory, deserves to be stoned. I mean, Jesus has this knack. If you really study the life of Jesus, Jesus has this knack. He's in the frying pan in Nazareth, moves to Capernaum, jumps right into the fire. You know, we always think that Jesus was always about being nice, right? No! Jesus was about truth. Jesus was about priorities. Jesus cared enough about people to confront out of love. Jesus went for the heart of the matter. And he was only blaspheming if it wasn't true, if he wasn't God. He already said in Nazareth that he was the Messiah by saying, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because, I, because I've come to proclaim good news. And this passage has been fulfilled, Isaiah 61. And if he heals this man, which is the prophecy out of Isaiah 35, the lame shall walk, the blind shall see. Another messianic passage. And then it's another fulfillment that he is in fact the Messiah. He is God come in the flesh. So he's laying the foundation first and foremost that what I'm trying to point to 
It's the kingdom of God has come. The Messiah has come to the world. The Savior has come. And so if I would merely heal the man without announcing the good news, you might miss it. And I want you to understand what is of priority, what is of utmost importance, that I come to bring forgiveness. That's why I came. I come to go to the cross because the cross is about forgiveness. That's why I came. Because we need forgiveness. So then this wonderful question that Jesus asks that will establish his authority and his power. He says, which is easier? I love that. Which is easier? You know what actually most of us would say? Well, it's easier to forgive sin because, you know, no one really knows whether it happened. Right? It's not visible. You know, if he's going to heal someone, that's visible. That would probably be harder. You know what the reality is? The forgiveness of sin is much more difficult, difficult because it required Jesus going to the cross. It's much more difficult. In order for us to experience forgiveness of sin, Jesus had to go to the cross. It's much more difficult. It's much more costly. Imagine the dilemma that the scribes and the Pharisees, the ones that are challenging him, are in right now. Because on the one hand, there's no requirement of anything visible if forgiveness happens. But on the other hand, healing is supposedly the easier one because only God can forgive sin. But up to this point, they haven't seemed to be able to do the easier one, right? Because this man hasn't been healed by them. So what does Jesus say? So that you know. So that you know that I have authority over the spiritual and the physical. So that you know I have the power over this world and the spiritual world. I say to you, rise, take up your mat, and go home. And in healing the man, he proves his Messiahship. He proves that he has power over the spiritual world as well. The power confirms the forgiveness. It's the cross and going to the cross. It's the forgiveness offered. The resurrection confirms the power he has over the forgiveness. It's the same. It's the same. But Jesus had to lay down the priority. What was most important first? And in his and in his kingdom, the eternal is what is most critical. Because we're all going to die. 
in Psalm 103. There's a wonderful verse. Actually, starts off in verse 2. Let me read it to you. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and do not forget all of his all of his benefits, who forgives your iniquity and who heals your diseases. Notice what comes first. Who forgives your iniquities comes first. Because that's what's most important. You know, what's fascinating about this particular healing as well, we don't know whether this man had any faith at all. Notice we're never told that. Did you notice that? We're never told whether this guy lying in the mat, the paralyzed one, whether, had any, whether he had any faith. You know, you know what I speculate, I wonder? Whether he's in that mat, and these guys come and say, Hey, we've heard about this guy. He's healed people. Let's, let's, let's go to him. We'll take you. Because he can't get there himself. We'll take you there. And he says, You know what? I'm tired of this. We've tried before. I don't really want to do this. He says, No, no, no. We got you. And, and they pick him up in his mat. And he's saying, No, no. Don't do this. And then they get there. And, and the guy says, Good. The door's jammed. We can't get in. And they say, No, we've got another plan. We're going to rip the roof apart. And he's saying, are you kidding me? You know how embarrassing that is? And then he's dropped below. And the first thing he hears is your sins are forgiven. And Jesus looks in his eyes and something happens. Because he trusts Jesus enough that when Jesus says, take up your mat, stand up and go home, he does it. Something happened. Whether he had faith or not, it was Jesus' authority and something in Jesus that touched the man. And it was the power of friendship, too. The commitment of friends. And I wondered, do you have those kind of friends? You know, that's really what the church is meant to be. That kind of community. Do you really understand that? That's what the church is meant to be. I think most of us don't understand that. And it's not just about being that kind of church when it comes to physical things. It's that kind of church when it comes to spiritual things. That we care enough about people. That we want them to find forgiveness. That we want them to discover the saving grace of Jesus Christ. That we're willing to overcome the obstacles that it takes to get them to the place where they discover God's forgiveness. 
When Jesus talks about friendship, he talks about something completely different than just helping someone move or change a tire or cut down a tree. That's helpful and that's important. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this to lay down his life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. Do you know what he commands? Really? That we're to be about the gospel. That we're to be about the mission of this church. That we're to be about his community. That we're to be about washing feet and self-sacrificial love. See, if you really understand the cross, the cross is about forgiveness. That Jesus had to go there because we need a Savior. That he went there out of love. Too many people are preoccupied with worldliness. Too many people are even preoccupied with what the church is not or not giving them or that it's full of hypocrites. You know what? It's full of sinners. If you don't think you're a sinner, you don't belong, first of all. And secondly, you're in big trouble. It's full of sinners that need forgiveness. And there's always room for one more. And we need to get the word out that this is where forgiveness is found. And this is where healing is found. And this is where love and friendship is found. That we need to be that kind of church and we need to be those kind of friends. That's what this miracle is about. Please bow with me in prayer. Lord God, this, this man was broken. He wasn't whole. He was considered unholy, but his friends did not reject him. There are many broken people in the world who need friends. There are many broken people here who need friends. And we need to be those kind of friends for each other. That kind of community that brings people to Jesus for forgiveness and healing 
that reach out with compassion and love, that offer forgiveness. Because we ourselves have found forgiveness. Lord God, help us to be people of the cross. People of compassion and love. People of forgiveness. People that understand your kind of friendship. The friendship that offers self-sacrificial love. Of laying down our lives for each other. Lord, help us to live in the shadow of the cross and with the power of the resurrection and to be your community. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.